You're listening to MCS Spotlight, Resources for Life, Leadership, and Ministry. This is Luch Lombardi from the William Morrill Leadership Center at Masters College. I hope you enjoy the podcast. All right, let's shift gears a little bit here and get more specific. We've talked about mental health, mental illness, the professional help, the professional helpers who help us. Uh, what about some terms that we're hearing an awful lot these days, depression and anxiety? So, so let's start with depression. What is depression and maybe what is it not? How do we differentiate that? Yeah, no, and it's a good point. You know, um, depression and anxiety were on the rise pre-COVID, but definitely know that people who have not experienced depression and anxiety before this time of the pandemic are experiencing these symptoms for the first time. It's a little disorienting for them because it, they, you know, they're kind of surprised in how they're feeling. And so depression in particular, I'll just say up front, you know, I, I, I see depression as something that can be past focused. There can be some rumination, some, some kind of thinking tapes on replay about things of the past and regrets. Um, and it has a little bit of a hopelessness theme. This is just very general. Anxiety can have more of a future oriented lens with the what ifs of the future and there can be a helplessness type of feel and theme to it. Those are generalities, but more specifically with depression, we're seeing um, symptoms, two main ones is, you know, low mood, depressed mood, feeling sad, and a loss of interest and pleasure connecting to the activities we once enjoyed. And so, man, even those two things, that doesn't sound very nice to experience, does it? No. And so on a day-to-day, we see people, there's, there's a lack of energy and motivation. There's increased fatigue and tiredness. There can be appetite that's increased or decreased, weight that is increased or decreased. And this is a big one. This is a, like a hallmark feature. You know, feelings of worthlessness and inappropriate guilt. And that is something that, you know, there's this, there's kind of a dark cloud and there's these, these, these darker lenses by which people are now kind of seeing the world. I use this little illustration, you know, if you've ever flown in an airplane on a cloudy day, you can't see the landscape below you. It's there, might even be sunny for the the folks below, but all you can see is very limited. You see the cloud cover around you Uh, until you go through the clearing. You can then see the sun, the detail, the landscape below. And so there's this fogginess, limited and negative vision of life, self, others. Concentration is very much sometimes impaired. You know, it's difficult to make decisions clearly and quickly. And there's just this sense of things slowing down. Sometimes people's speech is slower. Their physical body movements are slower. There can be aches and pains that people uh, experience in their body. And so diagnostically, when we look at this, it's, we call it depression or depending on the severity intensity, major depression. If somebody's experienced this for greater than two weeks, I think some people miss that because the only two weeks, yeah. If it if it persists past two weeks, you know, you're probably, um, you know, you're probably coping with some depression. And then there's vulnerability factors when we think of what might make us more susceptible or vulnerable to having a depressive episode. And these are just a few things. 
certainly somebody who's had maybe a, a past life, life trauma, any form of abuse or domestic abuse, chronic illness and chronic pain are two big ones, or people with multiple chronic health conditions. If your family, family has a history, certainly of depression, but even if you're a close loved one is experiencing depression, there's kind of like a higher risk for another person in the family also developing symptoms. And certainly um, relationship dysfunction and dis disconnection, somebody who feels really disconnected and lonely and substance use. And those are some of the vulnerability factors we could consider as well around um, depression. So it's more than, or different than feeling sad, right? Because there might exactly. be moments that we, we feel sad and actually that's appropriate, but it sounds like in, in a depressive episodes or extended times of depression, the, even those emotions might not appear <laughs> like the yeah. sad, a, a bit yeah. inability to feel sad type of there, thing. And those types yeah, of there can be, a, there can be a numbing for sure. No, it's a good point, Peter, because we can throw around these words like casually, right. And, and not even perhaps it's inappropriate. Oh, I feel depressed, but you might just be feeling sad and it's time limited. You felt sad. It's an appropriate reaction to loss or a stressor or something that happened. And, you know, it lasts a few days and you can rebound. That's just, that's normative and maybe even more than a few days for sure. But we're looking, when we're looking for things where we really want to get some professional help is when we look at that frequency, how frequent do I experience this? How intense is it? And how long is it lasting? Right. And how am I feeling and functioning? Like really, how am I functioning? And we look, we really want to look at that. Okay. Very helpful. You've mentioned anxiety, but tell us, uh, we didn't really get into the, what that might mean. And especially for those who, who haven't experienced this, it might be difficult to understand what this is. What do you mean? What do we mean by when we say that somebody's uh, has an anxiety problem? What is anxiety? Yeah. And, and I think it can happen with depression or anxiety. People can be um, like invalidated or people can, others can minimize maybe what they're experiencing or their symptoms. Just say, oh man, that, that person's just fearful or they need to get over it. Or man, can they not just kind of, you know, get it together? You know, they're, they've been sleeping a lot and disengaged and withdrawn or there, you know, and so there can be these invalidating ways and judgmental ways of, of viewing people who are struggling Again, uh, it's normative to feel anxiety. It's, it's appropriate to feel fear or anxiousness when there really is something that's a life stressor, when there's something that happens that where, you know, you have an upcoming exam, you have a job interview, there's, you're having your a baby for the first time, even these good life transitions and changes or some that are more negative, it's, a, it's an appropriate response to feel stress or nervousness. You know, and especially if there is some kind of threat, it's very appropriate to fear, feel fear and anxiety. That's our survival system, which we might talk a little bit more with uh, in regards to trauma. And so here's, here's kind of um, a little bit of the recipe maybe for anxiety. And then I'll talk about vulnerability factors and criteria. So I like to see anxiety as really like this aversion or maybe even allergy to uncertainty. Okay. People with gener generalized anxiety. It's just this real um, difficulty coping with um, uncertainty and lack of control. And then if you want to create kind of a recipe that, that might create conditions for anxiety is, you know, experiencing something new, something uncertain, having a high degree of uncertainty, 
and something unpredictable and uh, where there's no end timeline in sight, you're not sure. And we link that to the pandemic. I mean, we have this recipe going on in our lives right now. And so with, with anxiety, generalized anxiety in particular is what I'm going to comment on here. We kind of use this illustration sometimes of a faulty smoke detector because we, we, it's our nervous system that kind of refires more than it needs to or when it's not really needed or appropriate. And so you right. think about smoke detector in your house, it's pretty good at alerting us, right? It's loud and it's going to go off. It's pretty sensitive. It's going to go off with smoke or heat. And so when that smoke uh, alarm goes off in our home, we aren't sure in that moment if there's a house fire or if we burnt the toast or burnt the popcorn or cheese spilled over in the, in the oven, if it's a true emergency threat or if it's just something that has gone wrong and it's, it's not a true threat. Right. And so our old brain that is in charge of our fight, flight, freeze, that is in charge of our kind of a survival responses, it's not very good at di- discerning between what's an actual threat um, what's not. And so when we're in generalized anxiety, we're um, not only experiencing increased worry, but our nervous system is detecting this perception of threat that is perhaps a little bit irrational or not there. And it's happening more frequently. And so here are just some of those hallmark features of generalized anxiety to look for. And so we have like really persistent and really excessive worry. And the worries are many. Um, they're hard to manage or control. It feels like the worry is out of control. It's a lot about the what ifs, you know, of the future. There's some thought style and catastrophizing. So things go to the worst fear narrative. Things jump to the what if, what if, what if, and they chain together and downward spiral and into this worst fear scenario. A lot of hypothetical fear, a lot of hypothetical situations. People experience... So that's like the worry part, the worry part of it. And then there's the anxiety, which is the physically felt part. A lot of somatic or body sensations, body tension, upset stomach, uh, headache, tingling, heart palpitations, hot, cold, felt in the body, feeling sweaty. And so these are some of the physical things that are felt. And some of the behavior that happens to cope with this feeling of anxiousness is um, avoidance, a lot of avoidance, avoiding that fear stimuli, avoiding that social situation, avoiding getting work done or homework or avoiding the thing that creates that sensation in our body of anxiousness. And sometimes control, exuding a lot of control in certain areas to try to give us, you know, the sense of calm and regulation. Um, And so those are some of the hallmarks, the worry, the physically felt anxiety, Uh, that we look for with generalized anxiety. And again, we're looking for how intense and how frequent and the duration that those symptoms are lasting for. And so you you raised a lot of of good points here about our brain. You know, here's this organ in our body that has no contact with the outside world except through perceptions. And Mm -hmm. it's trying to make sense of uh, what it can't see. So it's going to use our eyes and ears and, and touch and so forth to do that. And then it's trying to decide, should we be running away or should we be relaxing? <laughs> and, yeah. and so sometimes it's, it's um, can become oversensitive, or I guess that depends on person to person as well and different experiences in our life. So we have our brain guessing and sometimes it's like a, a fire alarm that is, is oversensitive. 
but in a sense, it's doing, it's trying to, you know, it's regulating what it's supposed to regulate. If we feel uncomfortable about something, you know, a strange dog is running at me, growling and barking, that would be a good thing for me to maybe not stay in that place. Right. So I'm going to avoid it. But here we have maybe those types of feelings, maybe not that intense, or maybe exactly that intense in situations that are not really threatening. And, yeah. and yet we would feel like I got to get out of here. So that's, what's going on. It's our, you know, it's our brain properly responding <laughs> when it, yeah. to a misperception. <laughs> yeah. It thinks yeah. it's doing its job. Right. right. And it, it's sending us into your, just a little more language. there, like mobilization, which is the fight flight. Yep. So that high readiness, these mechanisms happening in our body, our heart, you know, pounding faster. It's, it's getting blood supply to our extremities that we can get out of there. It thinks it's doing its job or it, it can send us, you know, uh, mobilization kind of doesn't work and fails or the stressor is more extreme into immobilization. So that's the freeze response. And, you know, that's where we're going to feel kind of paralyzed or detached or foggy or tired, just kind of like that shutdown mode. And, uh, so if we can, if we, you know, if we can imagine situations where we felt afraid for a moment, somebody, a friend jumps out to scare us from behind a corner or, or a strange dog comes running at us and that, you know, that feeling that we have that is, it sure gets our attention, right? Like, in fact, dur during those moments, for a split second, we cannot concentrate on anything else. It's all, that's the only thing in the world, right? When that person jumps out and scares us or something like that. Uh, and yet when that persists, that type of feeling, maybe not quite that intense or whatever the case is, persists, and people are trying to live with that on, on a daily basis, that maybe it's intense, we can see how that would be something that would might really uh, interrupt life and just normal pleasure functioning and peace of mind. Absolutely. I mean, I think that illustration was so well described and gave us that image, right? What would it be like for us to feel that mobilization, right? Chronically ongoing during our day, sometimes with a trigger, sometimes even randomly, you know, um, as our, as our brains assessing for perception through perception for threat and I think if we really try to imagine that for ourselves, I think that we can access quite a bit of compassion or empathy for, for those who may have those persisting symptoms. So it's not, it's not about get it together, get over it, or they're just full of fear or they need to pray more. It's, oh, this is a physiological response. This is complex. It's biology and psychology and sociology. That's, it's just complex what's happening here. And wow, it would feel mis it would be miserable to feel that way. Okay. So before we go on to another term, depression and anxiety, you mentioned being very widespread. Uh, the pandemic has just emphasized this in lives all, all the more. And you mentioned a lot of people experiencing these things that never had before. They maybe heard the terms and thought, oh, that's somebody else, but suddenly they're noticing these things happening in themselves. What can just, this is, could be a whole other episode at some other time we can talk about, you know, how, how to help uh, pastorally in these areas, but what, what should pastors, like, is there anything when we're, when we're talking with people individually or, or let's, let's, or maybe in our, in our sermons <laughs> that we should not do <laughs> to <laughs> exacerbate the depression and anxiety? Cause I, I got to tell you in certain forms of Christian preaching, more conservative settings. I'm pretty convinced that 
if not exacerbated these situations, if, if not caused depression and anxiety in people over long periods of time. So help us out just for a, a minute here. What should a pastor not do to make these things worse? Okay, that is a really great question. And I would actually, I would actually love to give that more thought and be able to even give more. Feedback. I surprised you with this one. I yeah, no. It's just, it's just that as we were talking, I thought this might be something pastors are wondering, and maybe we can do a whole other time when we talk yeah. about this, but just off the top of your head. <laughs> this is, no, this is great. You know, something, the first thing that comes to mind is actually Brett Ullman has in his uh, great resource. I, I refer you to Brett Ullman as a great resource yeah. on some of these tips because he wrote an article on this. And the first thing that comes to mind is just very practical. Like when pastors are asking people to fill up the front and move from the back and make it a real kind of issue. Sometimes people are sitting at the back to manage and regulate themselves to, to feel less anxious. And they feel a little more secure and safe back there for, for many reasons. And so that, you know, a lot of times people walk out the door when they're asked to do that, or if they do move up front, they're so anxious, really, you know, that learning part of our brain and our prefrontal cortex and our forehead, it's just kind of offline and they're not taking anything in anyways. And so it's just, um, be not having a lot of rigidities around things that we don't need to emphasize something like that but certainly the way we talk about even mental health relationships how we present what fear is or really kind of judgmentally talking about fear and blending that in with with anxiety is it's kind of being clear with folks on uh, maybe terms. So the first thing is kind of maybe, like you said, up front, knowing some of the terms, gaming some of the understanding, understanding how our body works and how it's so connected with our mind and our spirit and relationships and being able to softly present that openness for a multitude of experiences. It might not just be this narrow focus that you're, you're in fear. This is going, what's going on. And you need to pray about that that there's this broader understanding and openness that there's a lot of other different experiences that are, that are going on. So how that's spoke about um, and presented more in a cure with curiosity over judgment okay. with an openness over maybe a rigidity. Yeah. Getting personal understanding. Yeah. Just careful how managing people in the crowd, asking people to do specific things in a group are single, singling them out. Sometimes when, when pastors like call people's names out, write so-and-so, write John, write Sally, um, makes people really uncomfortable. So you got to yeah. know the person, you got to know the person, right? Because for others yeah. that might be fun and enjoyable, but yeah. So that could, um, got to know, know the congregation. I think, again, this could be a whole, uh, certainly a whole other discussion and maybe we'll do that in the future, but maybe just the awareness, like, Hey, people, might be going through all manner of things. We don't know. Now it doesn't mean we just then don't say anything about anything, but probably just be careful about um, some of the things you've mentioned, the, the uh, judgmental things, that type of thing, because you got, might have people wrestling with, well, I mean, look at some of the, the pattern of a revivalist preacher is you got to make everybody feel guilty enough to respond right at the end. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, you know, that's, that's good for the end of the, the service. Long-term, I wonder, if that's so helpful for people's spiritual and psychological well-being, but uh, let's let's move on. Before I get myself in trouble here, OCD. We hear that tossed around a lot. What does this term mean? What does it not mean? 
So we, yeah, maybe even more so it's kind of, we can use this in this facetious or maybe derogatory casual manner where, oh man, they're, they're OCD. If somebody's showing like a, maybe they're particular about something or they have a strong preference, but that's not what OCD is about. And folks with OCD are, they're really suffering. And, you know, we could think of it in terms of people, it's an anxiety disorder. So it's, it's related to anxiety for sure. People are having obsessions, these unwanted, intrusive, disturbing thoughts and images and even impulses that they just suddenly pop up and overwhelm them and create a lot of anxiety and, and even distress. And so to try to cope with these unwanted intrusive thoughts and the distress and anxiety, there's behaviors, there's these compulsions, they feel compelled to do a deliberate behavior. So, I mean, we think about like the hand-washing that's under the contamination theme or checking or counting or symmetry and ordering. We, we typically think about that. That is part of it. And they're doing these behaviors to try to ward off the anxiety. And so it can be ritualistic. It can be very repetitive, some of these behaviors. But the, the goal is they're trying to really reduce their anxiety because they have, they have these unwanted thoughts. Let me just give you an example because it links it links to something a little deeper so if somebody has like a symmetry ordering type subtype type and they're they're a counter so they've picked um an odd number day today's number is seven i'm walking down the hallways of school i'm counting the floor tiles you know to the number seven oh i just landed on eight. Oh no something bad's going to happen something bad's going to happen to my family, to my parents are going to die. Something bad's going to happen to my friend. There's this almost superstitious element, but there's this consequence that's going to happen if they don't do the compulsion or ritual appropriately. And so then that again, creates this huge amount of distress. And and it's a feedback kind of loop there where then there can be more um, obsessions and more compulsions. It's really quite... (laughs) quite a distressing thing for people to experience. And so just to create a little more understanding, so there's subtypes, there's kind of themes in which these type of thoughts or compulsions can fall under. And I'll just give you a couple here. Sure. So one is self-harm. So sometimes folks can have really kind of obsessive, unwanted thoughts about self-harm, fearing they're going to hurt themselves, fearing they're going to hurt others. It's not actually that they are Um, typically participating in self-harm it distresses them they don't want to do this behavior but it's intrusive unwanted thoughts that come up about the subject so self-harm contamination right so that one we often think about with germs hand washing ritualistic around cleaning surfaces and not touching certain surfaces contamination there's unwanted sexual thoughts and there's like a few actually categories underneath of that underneath that including pedophilia because people can have those sorts of intrusive thoughts and they're not pedophiles. They do not want to engage in that behavior. They're very distressed about those thoughts that pop into their minds. I mentioned symmetry. So counting, ordering symmetry. Again, you know, if I don't, if I don't arrange my books on my bedside table in this particular way, I I get an extreme headache. There's like, there's a consequence that can come from not performing the uh, compulsion or ritual. Right. And this is one I thought would be interesting for us to note because there's a, a category that's actually 
more frequent than we think that's around religious yeah. um, obsessions. Yeah. I thought that would be interesting for me to just say a couple things about, so, so we can understand because maybe you'll come across someone who's, who's struggling to feel good enough as a believer or a Christian, but maybe they fall into this type of concern. And so somebody who has OCD around religious religiosity, so they, they have these, un, again, intrusive, unwanted thoughts around, you know, not fulfilling or violating their um, religious or ethical beliefs. So in particular, a couple examples, what this might look like, you know, they might really get upset if they think they forgot to pray. They might have an extraordinary a number of times a day they, they feel like they need to pray. Yeah. Um, they feel really um, a lot of guilt if, you know, profanity comes into their head. They're very fearful of blasphemy, that they're going to do something blasphemous, but it's, it's a little bit irrational. It's, it's, it, they're really concerned about committing sin, hyper-focused on purity. They may have excessive concern with like right rigidity around right and wrong, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. And performing religious tasks or, or duties, they, they're, they're going to fear they're going to do something the wrong way and they're going to be sent to hell or they're going to do something the wrong way. And um, there's just going to be this consequence that they're not living up to their religious duty, to their faith, to their spirituality. And by, by practicing all of these things, the prayers and monitoring themselves, making sure they're doing everything very in a perfectionistic lens, like they don't report any <laughs> pleasure in this, you know, no great assurance or joy in their spirituality or faith this is distressing to them. So that's a, just a little bit about so that religious yeah. category. So that, I think this is incredibly helpful. I've, I've also read, you know, compulsion to, I not even think about it, compulsion to constantly confess. I need to ask God to forgive yeah. me throughout the day type of thing. Yes. And the tie to religious themes here is, uh, is important and why pastors especially might need to um, be aware of this OCD element obsessive compulsive disorder and so we trivialize it when we we say it's things like i like my desk ordered in a certain way or whatever because if, if those things can actually bring pleasure to a person i like the way this is i organize yeah. this or i do that that's not what we're talking about it for the ocd person they're distressed unless these things are done so it's um, it's you know and um you mentioned some of the uh the thought pieces that that are fascinating here I'd read there's speculation that, that the reformer Martin Luther might've had some form of OCD and that he would get up to preach and would have a thought come in his mind, apparently regularly that the first words to come out of his mouth would be swear words. So he would not speak for, you know, three, four, five minutes. Yeah. And then he would preach. Now, if I'm understanding this correctly, if he just went ahead and started talking, he wouldn't have, he wouldn't have sworn the, the thought can't control your behavior. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's the fear of that. This is going to happen. And it's incredibly intense. Now our brains toss up thoughts to us on a regular basis. That's what our brains do. We only become conscious of very few of those at yeah. any given moment, but we all might have a, an odd thought. We're driving along the road and, Oh, I could run over that person. Right. And we just think mm -hmm. that's, um, that's not something you want to do. It's just, well, it's a possibility. <laughs> and we just yeah. usually laugh it off, right? But for yeah. the person suffering with this, this becomes incredibly fearful, maybe because 
their pastor has said, you should never have an, a thought about such and such, uh, whatever. And so you've mentioned some, some fascinating areas here about when it even comes to, let's say, sexuality, pedoph pedophilia, yeah. would yeah. I hurt a child? Well, a person's extremely unlikely to ever hurt a child. That's not their, they're not, a, they're not, <laughs> it's not a no. sexual preference for them or anything else. They're afraid of oh. doing something that's wrong. And sometimes uh, Bri James Brian Smith in his book, the good and beautiful God tells a story about this. So I'll try to tell you this really quickly because I think it is an episode of this type of thing occurring. He talks a lot about the love of God and he was at a retreat with some young adults. He was talking a lot about God's love and need to accept that. There was a young man there who just the whole weekend could not accept any of this and was sort of very resistant to that type of teaching. And uh, anyway, the weekend was over and a few months later, he gets this phone call from this young man and he says to James Ryan Smith, is what you're saying about that God loves us true? And he said, well, yeah. He goes, are you sure this is true? And he said, yeah. He says, what, why, what's the issue? He said, I can't get into my car. So what do you mean you can't get in your car? He said, I can't, I can't bring myself to get into my car because if I get into my car and I'm driving and I have an accident, if I, what if I've had a bad thought just before that accident, then I would go to hell because my pastor used to pound the pulpit and say, you know, if you haven't asked God to forgive you for everything and you have some, I don't know, let's say a hateful thought, lustful thought, whatever the case is, and you die, you will go to hell. That, that stands out to me as probably, maybe an example, I'm not going to diagnose it here, but as an example of here's something that's exacerbated within mm -hmm. this young man's life where it's now affecting him physically, and maybe it's a form of trauma. And, and in any case, it's, uh, I've also heard others, I talked to another friend of mine uh, who, who is counselor, Jerry Tan, who has heard uh, psychologists talk about sometimes in our preaching in holiness settings, Pentecostal holiness, evangelical conservative settings, it can actually not exacerbate or create OCD within people if certain themes are emphasized over and over and over again. And so it's good for a pastor to be mindful yeah, yes. when, when Paul says, examine yourselves <laughs> before the Lord's Supper, there's a portion of the congregation that are already doing that way more than Paul meant. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that's true. And, and, you know, they do exactly what you're saying, Peter, they do link um, this particular subtype to a person having like this, their God image, right? They're having a really negative image of God, a really punishing image and so self-punishment can be a part of their behavior as well, but they see God as punishing and you could see how a, a messaging like that could be picked up and received um, from that example. Thanks for joining us on this edition of MCS Spotlight. This is Luke Lombardi coming to you from William Morrill Leadership Center. To contact us, you can reach us by email at advancedleading at mcs.edu. And you can follow us on Twitter at advancedleading or visit our webpage at mcs.edu leadership. And we're also on Facebook under Dr. William Morrill Leadership Center. Thanks for being with us.